Luke chapter 10. It'll be the whole thing. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way, and behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture, how rich it is. And we ask that you would open our eyes to understand it and to change our lives in response to it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I should begin by saying I did not ask for the pulpit to be here. But I am glad it is. When you reach my age, as some of you either have or will soon, you know that there are times when you go off to a certain room and you say to yourself, now, why was I here? That happens to preachers in the middle of a sentence. You start a sentence and you say to yourself, where was I going with this? That's when this is very helpful. (laughs) It's not a manuscript. But at least it tells me the general direction that I'm heading. Several uh, months ago now, my son-in-law, one of my son-in-laws and I attended a conference and it was called Work as Worship. That's not a bad title. And if you went to a passage like Romans chapter 12, your reasonable service of worship, you would say it's a good one. I think that the the word that ties these three stories in Luke chapter 10 together is the word work. But work is viewed in a somewhat different way. Because in this regard, work may become the problem rather than the desired result. And so our Lord is giving us some perspective on this. Now, remember the day and the audience You're talking about Judaism. You're talking about legalism. You're talking about a system that assumes that what you do and or don't do is what establishes your relationship with God, right? It's it's a legalistic system. And so it's not a surprise that the uh, lawyer who approaches Jesus would say, what must I do? Because that is the system in which they're living. And so when Jesus talks about work, he's got a lot of correcting to do in terms of the theology of his day. Even the theology of the prominent religious leaders, maybe I should say especially the theology of the prominent uh, Jewish leaders. That needs to be addressed. 
Now, we know, as we look at this text, it says, after this, chapter 10, verse 1, so let's just remind ourselves of where we are in chapter 9, in particular. Chapter 9 has, I think I would call it the high watermark, as it were, uh, of this whole period of Jesus working with his disciples, and you see a, a number of things happening. First of all, you see the sending out of the twelve, right? And and the Lord sending them forth. They come back, but instead of having this kind of uh, conversation that Jesus has in chapter 10, it's the feeding, it's the gathering of, of this crowd to be around Jesus, to see him, to be healed. And Jesus, therefore, feeds the 5,000. Then you have the question that Jesus asks, which is really the final exam for the disciples, and that is, who do you say that I am? And Peter comes forth. Predictably, he's the one who speaks, and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And then follow, following that is the, the, the great transfiguration of our Lord before three of his disciples. Now, there's other things uh, that, that come about in that, in that text as well, but those are the big ones. And remember, it's after that that Jesus says in the same text, remember, I told you, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, and I'm going to die. I think that really rocked the boat of the apostles. And, and I think they're, they're just trying to clear their heads as to what, where are we? What are we doing? And that may bear on chapter 10. When you come to chapter 10, you have three stories, all of which are unique to Luke. You, you have the, the story of the sending out of the 70, and if you're reading through this, you see yourself, where did that come from? I mean, where in your reading of the other Gospels would you have ever said in your mind, now, there's actually this other group, this bigger group of guys. You wouldn't have expected it. But, but you recall in the Gospel of John that John says at the end of chapter 20, man, if I told you everything there was to say about Jesus, the books couldn't contain it. You know, this, what we read in, in the Gospels is the tip of the iceberg. So the fact that Luke mentions things that are not elsewhere, why not? In all the plethora of things that our Lord Jesus has done. But he gives us these three events, I think all connected, if you would, by this, the concept of uh, work. So we have the sending of the 70, we have the Good Samaritan, we have the, uh, the pouting Martha who uh, is concerned about lunch. Oh, that never, of course, has any bearing on you, does it? When noon hour is coming and there's a roast in the oven, I'm sure it's not a factor. So let's look at this sending of the 70 because it's really interesting. And I'm not going to touch the 72 piece. I, to me, that's... At this stage, that, that's kind of an irrelevant discussion. But you know, some texts say 72. It's a whole bunch of folks. Notice the length of this account. It's longer than the sending out. It's more than twice as long as the sending out of the, of the uh, 12, which I, I find uh, pretty interesting. These people, we know, must have been believers because Jesus says, rejoice in the fact that you're going to be in the kingdom. So I would assume they're believers. They are not called disciples. Now that, the text, some translations mess it up, but it says he chose 70 others. 
I don't like to get off from the Greek tule weeds, but I'll just say to this. Others means different. Seventy different people. So they're not likened to the disciples. And you'll notice, you say, well, wait a minute. Jesus said to his disciples uh, down in the text, remember? It says he turned and spoke privately to his disciples. In other words, he's speaking to the twelve when he speaks those words. But nowhere are these people called disciples. Now, I don't want to make a big thing of that. I, I just want to say they're not just another bunch, an extension of the twelve. They're really short-term missionaries, in my way of thinking. They're interns. They're people who, at that point, were followers of Jesus, in spite of the fact that in chapter 9, last verses, remember, here are the volunteers that come along. I'll follow you. Jesus says, not so fast. Birds have their nests and whatever. So a man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. You follow me and we won't be at Motel 6 tonight. And and so many people left him. And yet in spite of all that, here is a, a group of 70 people whom he is going to send out two by two. And they are, an, they are really an advanced team. And, and by that I mean it's a team that is is designed and, and, and tasked to, to go out to those cities, and, and interestingly, that word cities, I think, is prominent, to go to the population centers. I'm not saying they're huge cities, but the population centers that are between where Jesus is and Jerusalem. And, and these are the forerunners. When we were talking with Orv this past week, he was talking about Operation Mobilization, and when they had the ship that would go from, you know, port to port, he talked about the advanced team that would go ahead of that ship to the places where it was going to be to prepare people for the coming of that ship. That's what these guys were. They were people who were an advanced team saying, in effect, Jesus is coming to town. And, and so that was their, that was their mission. It's interesting when you think about this and Jesus gives this commission to them. It is, it is longer. It is more detailed than the commission given to the twelve. Now, you might say, well, because these are newbies, they needed more information. That may well be true. But it is a more detailed account. When Jesus gives them their commission, he doesn't make life easy. You know, he's not like one of the televangelist preachers talking about this is going to be really great. You know, this isn't Mary Kay's rally for the salespeople. This is Jesus saying, now, guys, I I got a tough assignment for you. You need to go and take no preparations. But rather, you are to be supported by your ministry. And, And what was that ministry? Doing miracles. Was it not? Your ministry is doing miracles. Now, you think about this if you're a newbie. You're going out, and Jesus is going to make a whole lot of the negative side of rejection, is he not? And he even pronounces woes on these Israelite cities that they're going to reject. I think some of this relates more to after Jesus' death than it does before. When he says, pray the Lord of the harvest that more workers might come, it seems to me that that fits better after Christ has finished his work. But when you're thinking about what are these 70 people hearing? They're hearing, I got a task for you. There's only one buddy with you. 
and you're going to places that are going to reject you. You don't have any resources, and the only way you provide for yourself is by doing miracles. Whew. I, you know, I say to myself, what were their expectations as they went out? Well, I would say fear and trembling. <laughs> you know, what, how are we going to do this? Notice, too, when Jesus sends them out, he tells them that they are to heal the sick. He does not tell them to cast out demons. Now, when he sent out the 12, he did. I don't think that's accidental or incidental because when these disciples come back after their mission trip, they are all hopped up. Why? Because I think what they expected to happen and what really happened were a world apart. They expected difficulty. They expected rejection. They expected persecution. And, and they come back and they said, Whoa, Jesus, you should have seen me. Whoa. And, and by the way, it says, even, notice that word, even the demons are subject to us. In other words, I think what they're saying is, yeah, I know you told us to heal, but by George, we discovered that the demons, we were casting out demons. We didn't know that was on the agenda. And, and all of that is really saying to Jesus, hey, Jesus, we were really a success. Or maybe it was like a kid, you know, you go to the basketball game and he's won a bunch of, uh, made a bunch of scores, and, and he's saying, you should have seen me, Jesus. I was really good. Well, there's kind of that flavor, I think, in in what we see uh, the disciples saying. And so Jesus has a little bit of a a correction. Now, notice he does not rebuke them. He does not say you weren't successful. He He affirms what they've said, and he says... In that, you're right, I see in what happened there a prototype of, of what's ultimately going to happen. I see Satan suffering defeat but at the hand of those whom I send out. So the disciples, the, I said the word now, didn't I? The 70, uh, I think, recognized that God had used them. He had used his power through them to perform these things. And he affirms the success that they had. Here's the problem. They fixed their joy on their success in ministry, or put it this way. They fixed their joy and rejoicing on successful ministry. Now, why do I say that with a sort of a butt hanging somewhere in midair? Because if you go to the Christian bookstores... That's all they write about, how to have a successful whatever, right? So Christian workers, whatever, they go to conferences and they hear guys that have got mega churches and this is what you can do to be successful. You know what the problem with that is? There's too much emphasis on the success. And remember, when Jesus sends them out, he wasn't stressing success. He was stressing faithfulness at proclaiming the gospel. And we know after the death of our Lord, that's going to come in in large measure. So what Jesus says is this. Do not rejoice in your work. And, And by that I mean your successful work. Rejoice instead in your salvation. 
you know, that really puts things in a right perspective, doesn't it? If all we're doing is going through life looking for successes as the basis of our rejoicing, we're in trouble. If you're looking and rejoicing on the basis of the fact that you are a part of God's kingdom, you can rejoice every day. That is what is the focus. And so what Jesus is saying is, don't get fixed on the success part. Get fixed on the fact that you have been saved. And now, if he hasn't humbled them quite enough yet, he's going to add something else. And by the way, in my mind, the lawyer is listening. Can't prove that. But I think the lawyer's listening. And he says, I praise you, Father, because you haven't re- re- given this revelation to the scholars. You've given this revelation to babes. Or for myself, because I love to play with words, I, I said, you didn't give this to the brains of Christianity or religion. You gave it to the babes. Hey, that's not flattery, is it? I mean, these people who are all hopped up about their success are now told you need to be happy about your salvation. And by the way, don't take any credit for that. That's God's work. And because he's revealed it to babes, it wasn't because you were so bright. It was because God was so gracious as to reveal it, and he revealed it sovereignly. In other words, it's not your work you want to focus on. It's his work you want to focus on. That is grounds for rejoicing. There are three centers of joy in this particular text. The first is the joy of of the 70. The second is the joy of Jesus. Now, remember, chapter 9, he's told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem, And he's going to be rejected and crucified in a cruel death. That's Jesus' destiny, immediately. Why does he rejoice? Because of his relationship with the Father. He's praising God for the partnership, if you want to use that word, the partnership that he has in the work of saving men. God the Father chooses them. He reveals them to who he chooses and who the Son chooses. And the Son's part in that is to die an agonizing death. But because that is God's purpose and will and because God is good, Jesus rejoices in his work for which he has been sent. Thirdly, the joy of the disciples. I'm talking about the 12 now. And he basically says to them, Here's what you could rejoice in. The things you are seeing now are the things for which the Old Testament prophets have yearned to see. Does that sound a little bit like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12? The Old Testament prophets were looking down through time and saying, where is this? What does my words mean? Where is this going? And uh, Jesus says to his disciples, You're there in the fulfillment. You with me get to see it happen. Just a little momentary aside. If from that point in time the disciples can rejoice, how much more can we rejoice? How much more have we seen? 
We're not just talking about up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're looking at the rest of the New Testament. We have been privy to see the outworking, the revelation, Paul says, of the mystery of God's work. We're witnesses of that. It's done. And we can see it. And by the way, we can see it in his word, right? Fulfilled in the word, the Lord Jesus Recorded in his word. All right. Enough of the 70. Let's go to the Good Samaritan. Verses 25 through 37. I love the uh, New Revised Standard Version's handling of this at verse 25. It says, just then a lawyer stood up. Uh, a couple of translations badly translated. They say, uh, on one occasion... Another one says, uh, one day. What's the problem with that? The problem is it disconnects these events. It disconnects this whole business of Jesus talking to the 70 and what's going to follow in this matter of the lawyer and, and the Good Samaritan story. And by the way, I think the text actually, rightly, even if you don't say just then, I think it's rightly conveying the fact this happens next. This goes on, then this flows from it. Now, think about this guy, the lawyer, for a minute. He's a guy who is a scholar. He's highly regarded. He's the expert in the law. He has great authority, and he, along with his peers, universally, see it as their mission to discredit Jesus, right? This man is not a seeker. Would you agree with me from the text? He's not a seeker. He's coming with treachery to expose Jesus as a fraud. And and when uh, Jesus answers him uh, and responds to him, he comes back defensively. This guy's not a friend. He's not a seeker after truth. He's someone who's trying to sabotage this steamrolling work of Jesus that's getting bigger and bigger, especially as the 70 go out and all these cities are now expectantly looking for Jesus. And so I think what he says is this. uh, Wait a minute, Jesus. I overheard that conversation you had with the 70 and and you were saying um, that that, uh, you give your salvation to those who are babes and and not to those who are wise and scholarly where does that leave me? I, I think, you know, remember there's another occasion where the, the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you know these guys are really offended by what you say? <laughs> well, I think he was. So what he's saying is, well, what, what do I do? I'm a scholar. I'm a leader. I, I'm not like these people you've just described. What about me? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I think, by the way, when he says inherit eternal life, he's borrowing Jesus' terms because that's the way Jesus spoke. If I were answering, I would be the smart aleck that I am. And I would say, uh, my friend, your question makes no sense at all. You, as a lawyer, ought to know how to phrase questions, and it's dumb. What must I do to inherit? Wait a minute, wait a minute. When you inherit, you don't do anything, right? 
when you inherit, somebody else has done something and they die. That's what Jesus did. And you inherit because of what he did. But you didn't add to that. So Jesus was kind. And kinder than me, for sure. And and he just says to him, well, you are the expert in the law. Let's, this ought to be your, your venue. This ought to be your frequency. So, you know the law. What does the law say? Well, the law says, you will, shall love the Lord your God without your heart, soul, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. Jesus says, right on. You got it. Uh, so do it. Well, really, that is what the law said, wasn't it? The law said, do this and live. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving God, and there's nothing wrong with loving men, except for the fact that we are incapable of fulfilling that. So, he tells him to do the impossible. Now, the lawyer's got himself in a corner. And so, he resorts to his expertise. What do lawyers do best? Debate. Ah, there's a technicality here. So, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Note, by the way, when Jesus ends this conversation, he doesn't say, who is my neighbor? He said, who is the neighbor to that man? Kind of an interesting little subtle twist in that. But now the guy's really in trouble. And so Jesus says to him, look, I'm not going to do a word study. I'm not going to parse any Hebrew verbs. And I'm not going to get into a lengthy discussion. I'm just going to tell you a story because that's the way babes learn. (laughs) They learn simply. So he says, so let me tell you this story. There's a man on his way from Jerusalem down to Jericho. By the way, it's some of you, Gordon and Charlene, whatever, you've seen that road going from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's It's a pretty desolate, it's a great bandit spot. Great bandit spot. So here he is in a kind of a desolate place, and, and bandits uh, capture him. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him to a pulp and rob him and leave him. And, and I think the effect of this is to say, if somebody doesn't help this guy, he's a goner. You know, he needs help. He needs intensive care. And so here are three people that pass his way. By chance, notice, they just providentially, they go the way, and so the first is the priest. The priest comes, or he sees him. There's no question with seeing the man or perceiving his need, but for whatever reason, the priest says to himself, pardon me for using the word, that's not my job. That's not my work. That's not what I was called. I got an important meeting. Oh, 10 o'clock, oh, it's getting late. Around he goes. He's got more important work to do. So the Levite comes along. Again, here's this great religious leader. He has the same excuse. So he does a little loop around the guy, passes him by. Now, you have to giggle. You know, Samaritans were not the upper crust in Jewish eyes. Would you agree? In fact, if you go back to Luke chapter 9, do you remember the disciples when the Samaritan town rejects Jesus, <laughs> the disciples say to Jesus, like the mafia, hey, Jesus, you want us to take care of them? Yeah, we're going to smoke them. 
That's what they're saying. Should we just go ahead and call down fire from heaven? Poof, they're away. Samaritans were not the top of the social ladder. And Jesus is careful to to refer to him as a Samaritan. I would add, when you look at the man's response in the end, he doesn't have the guts to call him a Samaritan. He just says, the one who showed compassion. He can't get the word out. He's so biased. Anyway, so here you have a man who is on it. He's on a journey. Look, he's on a business trip. He's got a schedule to keep. He's got things to do. This is going to interrupt his schedule. He's he's going to have to revise things, and it's going to cost him some money. And so he goes through this whole deal. He binds the man up. He, he deals with his wounds. He takes them to an inn. By the way, that wouldn't have been right where he was. Takes them to an inn, leaves in there, promises to come back and pay. Then he goes off, does his business, and will come back to pay the debt. So Jesus says to the uh, lawyer, who is the neighbor? Well, the lawyer can't avoid the obvious. The neighbor is the one who shows compassion. Now, those were very difficult words to swallow. Because all the way through the, the Gospels in the New Testament, when Jesus showed compassion, oftentimes in the text, he did so on the Sabbath. And what was it the religious scholars had to say about that? They said, well, Jesus, you broke the rules. The Sabbath is a day of rest. You've done work on the Sabbath. What was Jesus' response? Remember, for instance, there was the woman with the hemorrhage for for many years. Jesus says, this is the daughter of Abraham. Don't you think it was right to show compassion to this woman? That's why Jesus said, I don't want sacrifice, I want mercy. So what is this all about? Well, it seems to me that this lawyer personifies official religious Judaism, and that is, your work is your excuse not to help people. Now, when you go back to the great commandments... Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the basis for all the other commandments. And so what do you do if you're going to love God and love your neighbor and you see a man laying in the middle of the road? You'd show compassion. That is exactly what the the community of religious leaders could not, would not do, and indicted Jesus for doing it. Their work was their excuse for not doing the loving thing. I don't want to work this one too hard, but I have to say in my years of life, even in ministry, I found repeatedly people saying, well, uh, that's not in my job description. You know, one of the things I love about my fellow elders and brothers and sisters here, if there's a piece of Kleenex laying in the aisle, you know what? It's there. It needs to be taken care of. And you don't call for the guy whose job description it is. You pick it up. When there's something that needs to be done, you don't use your job description as your excuse not to do what you ought to do. And I see that happening many, many places. People really falling back into their official jobs. And therefore, that means I don't do what God 
in principle commanded me to do. Okay, I'm going to move now to uh, one of my favorites here. Ooh, I better hurry too, huh? So here's uh, Mary and Martha. Martha whining away. It is interesting, by the way, to look at these two ladies uh, in terms of the totality of references to Mary of Bethany and, and Martha, her sister. Martha's the one who <laughs> got her hands on her hips when Lazarus dies. She got a lot of explaining to do, Jesus. You know, I mean, that, now Mary said it too, but with tears in her eyes. Uh, here, here's the thing that's interesting. You got a, a little gathering in Jesus' house. And if there ever was a place where a woman is on her turf, it's in the kitchen. Would you agree? Man. <laughs> it, all right. You know, that, that, especially in those days, hospitality fell largely upon the woman. And, and so this is really Martha's spot. This is where she could be in the sun, in, in the spotlight. And you can see, I can see, you can just see her in the kitchen. I can hear her in the kitchen rattle those dishes and, and say to herself, Dead gummit, Mary, where are you? And, and then she goes out and looks, and here's Jesus, as she always was, at his feet. John 12, 1 through 3, she's washing his feet again. She's doing his feet. That's where she was most comfortable. But Martha, the kitchen was her place. That was her domain. And she is mad that Mary is messing with her work. She's the gal who had the best meatloaf in town. Oh, her lamb stew was unmatchable. Her fresh baked bread. And she's looking for doing this meal and for Jesus to say, Martha, I have never eaten so well in my life. That's her glory. That's her glory. But Jesus, and when she says, by the way, there's a rebuke in her voice to Jesus, is there not? Oh, wait a minute, Jesus. Wait a minute. You see what's going on? You see her at your feet? You see me out here working hard in the kitchen? Tell her to get to work. And Jesus says, uh, well, actually, Martha, you were the problem. Because the important thing is the relationship with me. It's not the meal. It's not whether you serve the the best thing in town. It's a relationship with me. And the fact is, you out there in the kitchen aren't getting very close. In fact, if you look at the attitude and the words that you just said to me, you're you're moving away. But Mary has chosen the best thing. The relationship with Jesus has priority over our work. And I say that when I say our, I'm going to put myself in a, in a ministry context. I don't know how many people have diminished in their spiritual walk with the Lord because of their ministry work. I know, for instance, it's possible even at Community Bible Chapel that there may be a task that seems to be wanting. And there are those of us who might be inclined to say to other people, what are you doing? Get over here and help me do my job because it'll make me look better. It, 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 it just, don't, don't sit there just worshiping Jesus. The reality is some people need to stop what they're doing, not add more things onto the pile. Now, 
As I look out to you, I'm going to just say this generically. Some of you need to get off your chairs and do something rather than nothing. And some of you need to do less rather than more. I don't know who you are, so I can say it and go home. But I think that's true here. Oh, I wanted to say this. Sometimes it's actually Jesus who takes away our spot. Did you think about that? Now, Mary made the choice to, to forsake the kitchen and Martha with all the heat that was in there and, and, and to be at Jesus' feet. But sometimes our Lord actually does it himself. I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about those of us as we get older who have diminished capacity. The scary thought. I hate to even say it, but I probably demonstrated anyway, so you know. But diminished capacity, and we're saying to ourselves, well, I can't do for Jesus what I used to do. The one thing he hasn't taken away, my friend, is your ability to worship him. In fact, diminished capacity may actually enhance your walk with Christ. So let's not talk about what God has taken away from us. He may have taken it away for our good because that's what we need to really rest in him. Okay, there's the three stories, and as I see the clock, my time is up. Let me say this. There's the gospel that we ought to see in these stories. Work is really the central, or at least a a critical theme in, in all three of these, isn't it? The successful work of the 70 needs to be put in perspective with that work that God has done to save them, which they had nothing to do with. Rejoice in that. The, uh, the lawyer and the priest and the Levite whose work was really their excuse to disobey God's word rather than to do it. And a man who had nothing to offer in terms of Israelite thinking follows what God has called for, loving his neighbor as himself. Not because it was his duty, but because it was his delight. It was there to be done, and he did it. Mary and Martha, there again. Martha's work got in her way. Mary didn't let that happen. What I'm trying to say is our work is not the basis for our relationship with God. That's what Judaism taught. I need to work so that I can have a relationship with God. That's what most religions say. The gospel says your relationship with God is the basis for all your work, whatever that work may be. And it may be in your job description. It may not be in your job description. I'm going to deal with that next week. And i got to confess, I'm changing my message. I'm changing my text. Matthew 25. we got to follow this one up. We're not done yet. Matthew chapter 25. Now, I'm going to jump on Tom's pedestal here. And, and I'm going to say this. Isn't this what Ephesians is about? Isn't Ephesians saying to us, chapters 1, 2, and 3, look at your relationship with God. It is all his work on your behalf. And when you look at 4 through 6, it's like saying, well, how how would that work 
of Christ, how would it manifest itself? There it is. But it's our relationship with Christ that is the basis for our work and not our work, which is the basis for our relationship with him. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, you can... One, one fellow, you could do all kinds of things. One, one fellow back at Believer's Chapel used to say, you could be baptized so many times that tadpoles know your social security number. Uh, you, you can work yourself to the grave, friend. You'll never make it into God's favor. But the, the reality is you inherit eternal life because of what he did and because he died. And that's what we celebrate at Communion. So give up. Give up trying. Give up your work and trust in his work. And out of that, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, not of works, but unto works. That's the way it flows. Works flow from our relationship with Christ. And that's the way it ought to be. One last thing. When Jesus left this earth and went to be with the Father, the relationship that believers have with Christ did not diminish, it increased. And that's what Jesus is saying in John 14 through 16. He's saying, look, I'm leaving my spirit behind. My spirit is going to dwell in you. He's going to be in your midst. He's going to live through you. We don't have some kind of second-class relationship with Christ after his ascension. We have a better relationship with him because he now dwells not just with us, he dwells in us. That is what the Christian life is all about. Okay, before I get too worked up, my blood pressure gets too high, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for these texts. Thank you for your gracious way of saying to us that we ought to keep working its proper perspective. Even those things which you are involved in, even those things where we appear to be successful, they're not what we should rejoice in. We should rejoice in the fact that you have called us. You have saved us because of the work of Christ. Help us to rest in that. May that be the basis and the motivation for our service to you. In Jesus' name, amen.